welcome back to the Lubber's Hole. You're with Ian. And with Mike. As we together read and discuss and ponder over, chapter by chapter, the Aubrey Matry novels of Patrick O'Brien. Mike, catch us up, please. Where did we get to last time? What might this week have in store? Well, thanks, Ian. Last time, Stephen returned to London only to find the grapes burned down and Diana gone off to Sweden to live with Yagello. And, mm. and he also learned that she had left before she even received his letter of you know, attempted explanation. All of Sir Joseph Blaine's people in naval intelligence have been undermined, and, and Sir Joseph doesn't know why or by whom. Stephen returned that brass box from the Danae, you know, with that small fortune in bear bonds to Barrow and Ray after he took Blaine's advice and kind of got his armor, you know, got all his, his close influence yielding people surrounding him at the region's birthday party. And Blaine and Stephen are now watching to see who steals some of those bearer bonds, who kind of goes to cash them taken from that brass box to maybe get a hint about who's behind all this stuff in the Admiralty. And finally, you know, kind of ominously at the end of the chapter, Ray invites Stephen, along with Barrows, to an intelligence mission in France. And, you know, we had our hearts beating a little bit on this. Well, this week, there's a lot of returns. Babington returns. Always love to see Babington. Cricket versus hurling, which is just another iteration of our England versus Ireland, always recurring theme here <laughs> in the books. Ashgrove Cottage comes all to pieces. The Reverend Martin is upset by the cost of setting up house, and he abandons bird watching just when Stephen needs it the most. And finally, Jack gets an unexpected visitor. Here we go, Mike. You have the feeling, don't you, that some bits of this story are starting to wind up to their full pace now. But this is this is a lovely chapter, Mike. You you and I were saying just before. I, I don't think I remember this chapter specifically because of the the high drama of what came before and what came after. But you and I have both been saying how we really, really enjoyed rereading this chapter. It's like this little moment of of calm and joy that sets our heroes up and gives them something to, to kind of look back on a little bit. The, the, the beginning of the chapter is strange. It's almost an echo of the chapter a few chapters ago when Jack was traveling overnight on the coach and on the packet uh, and, and encountered Ellis Palmer. This time, though, it's Stephen traveling overnight on the Portsmouth night coach. He's on his way out to Hampshire to see the Aubreys. And he's in this coach. There's another elderly lady. We think that was the only non-naval passenger on this coach. Right. This elderly lady, she asks Stephen's advice and really takes his advice not to buy stock in the present market because she thinks she believes this rumor that there's going to be peace in a few days. And Stephen kind of has to play this very, very cool. She says... Her advisors are mistaken. She's very happy to have his rather more skeptical opinion, and she's going to follow his advice. After this woman gets off, an accountant, so a money person riding along with them, tells Stephen that he agrees too. He says, I am convinced you are right, sir, in advising the gentlewoman not to buy. It does not appear to me that there's any real likelihood of peace. Two years ago, 
Yes, but not now, with the continental allies crumbling like dust and so much of our time and treasure taken up with this miserable, unnecessary, unnatural war with America. No, sir. I believe the rumours the gentlewoman's friends had heard were merely flim-flam, put about by evil-disposed men that wished to profit by the rise. All right, this is this is the opposite to Jack's perception of some of the same stories. This is the opposite to Jack's choice of action. He's decided to go all in. And just the fact that this news and this rumour and this stock-ramping scheme has reached the regular middle classes on the night coach makes me worry about what kind of situation Jack might have got himself into. Yeah, yeah. And I, I love your observation, Ian, that this is this is almost like the mirror image of Jack's ride with Ellis Palmer. Well yeah. spotted. Well, Stephen, you know, finally on this long journey, stops at a small alehouse. And, and from there, he's going to walk to Jack's house. And Mrs. Comfort, who is the, the alehouse you know, proprietor, comes out and, and has an offer of a little something since he's been riding all night. And Stephen, knowing that it's either going to be tea or small beer, you know, thinks, no, I don't need that. Just ask her to keep his bags while he walks to Ashgrove Cottage. And, and there was, a, it's an interesting thing here. This is Mrs. Comfort offering a little something, kind of a little POB humor. But uh, O'Brien calls her in the description an amiable slut. And I, I was kind of shocked. I, I'm like, whoa. And, and, you know, like, like hitting a, a bit of a roadblock in my reading here. But I did use some of our reference tools and looked back. And, and I see Shakespeare using this and consulting some dictionaries of the early 19th century. Slut was usually meant to mean unclean or untidy. And, and that's very consistent with POB's description of her having her hair done up kind of in little rags and things. But O'Brien adds just a little humor too. Uh, Mrs. Comfort asks Stephen, and, and she's twice in this paragraph called Killick, Wicked Old Killick. You know, she asks if Wicked Old Killick is going to come for his bags. And Stephen says he'll make a point of asking the captain to send him. So a, a little bit of, <laughs> you know, of almost like sort of teenage crush here in our later years going on. Thank you. Thank you, Patrick O'Brien. She doesn't mean Killick, that guy who's old and wicked. She means Killick. He's such a naughty boy. Exactly. <laughs> so we've, we've had this little encounter with kind of countryside society. We spent a lot of the previous chapter in London society. We're now in countryside society and we're at the small alehouse. And Stephen goes on walking deeper into the country. And Mike, the description of this walk that Stephen goes on, and it stretches over two or three little episodes and beats, is just beautiful. And it's poetic and it's lyrical and all those, there's all these beautiful descriptions. And of course, it's all about nature. We get species upon species. We get bright, sunny paths with birdsong. We get dark, silent, primeval forest. He goes down the slope. He thinks there's an opportunity to spot a badger, but he thinks it's, it's too late and it's close to dawn. And Mike, as we've often had, when O'Brien gets poetical, he talks about light, and he often finds himself talking about light at the beginning or the end of the day. Right. And he puts us so beautifully, so evocatively into this beautiful, still, glorious country morning. And Stephen's first response to this is to go to music. Um, you know, Mike, we've talked about it many, many times before. As as the pair of them, Jack and Stephen, use music as a sort of emotional conduit, and Stephen in particular returns to the music of his faith. He returns to old sacred music, in this case, Renaissance sacred music, when he's reflecting 
on difficult times and he's reflecting on danger. And I'm pretty sure he's reflecting mostly on the wound left by the departure of Diana. Mm. So the text says that he runs through a Gloria by Frescobaldi that he had recently heard. And we read that as dawn ends, he's kind of getting in his head to the end of the Gloria as the sun comes up. And he does finally see this badger, this striped badger walking backwards, pulling a load of stuff under its chin. And by the way, I really like the personification of the badger. The badger is described as crumbling and cursing all the way. This Frescobaldi reference, just to pick up and nerd out on the music for for a moment, um, Frescobaldi, uh, Girolamo Alessandro Frescobaldi was a Renaissance composer. Part of me wondered if O'Brien had just reached into his grab bag of funky-sounding, non-obvious Italian composers with vowels at the ends of their names. But actually, I think Frescobaldi is a pretty good choice. Um, he was alive in the uh, late 16th, early 17th century. He was from the Duchy of Ferrara in what is now northern Italy. His work, we learn, had an influence on later composers, uh, Vorberger in Germany, Purcell in Britain, and of course, Johann Sebastian Bach later on in the 17th century. Um, wrote lots of organ music. He wrote a few widely known and sung pieces of sacred choral music. I bet he wrote more than just this. Mm. But we think that the glory that Stephen's singing to himself is from the Messa Sopralaria della Monica, a mass on the uh, Song of Monica. And it's out there on all good music sources. We might play a little bit in just now. And if we don't play a little bit in just now, we'll certainly put some out on the social media. It's Frescobaldi. Very beautiful, very ancient, very Renaissance church music, very typical, I think, for Stephen to be contemplating on as the dawn rises. The dawns come up. Stephen's gotten to the end of this Gloria in his head. He's seen the badger and he thinks, O'Brien writes, why do I feel such an intense pleasure, such an intense satisfaction? For some time, he searched for a convincing reply, but finding none, he observed, the fact is that I do. He sat on as the sun's rays came slowly down through the trees lower and lower and when the lowest reached a branch not far above him, it caught a dewdrop poised upon a leaf. The drop instantly blazed crimson, and a slight movement of his head made it show all the colors of the spectrum with extraordinary purity from a red almost too deep to be seen through all the others to the ultimate violet and back again. Some moments later, a cock pheasant's explosive call broke the silence and the spell, and he stood up. Wow. And all this without laudanum. <laughs> right, right. Well, yeah. it's, it's really beautiful. I was wondering as I was, as I was reading this, whether O'Brien decided that he needed a beautiful and lyrical chapter for, for the benefit of Stephen's character who suffered such wounds in the previous chapter and also for the benefit of both of them because they've got some turmoil to come. 
Yeah, yeah. I, I do think, I remember reading O'Brien's kind of the notes on the Norton page about his book signings to America and other places. And he does call out these kind of moments in nature. So I, I wondered if this was a bit of a touchstone for him as well. And and certainly for Stephen, we know, you know, his his deep, deep passions, naturalists, so yeah. out there in nature and, and his faith. So here we are kind of, you know, perhaps as you say, you know, kind of grounding Stephen in the midst of these multiple tragedies, Diana and Naval Intelligence, and and as we say, what's about to come to his particular friend. Yeah. And it's it's so condensed and so intense and so poetic. It almost makes me think that, you know, one morning he might have had just a spectacularly beautiful morning walk out on the hills above Collier or something. This seems to be just tumbling out of him, all of this lyricism and all of this description. Um, he nice. keeps going. Yeah, he keeps going with the species count. He says he walks on, surrounded by the sounds of blackbirds, blackcaps, thrushes, larks, monotonous pigeons, and a number of birds that should never have sung at all. And as he gets to Jack's woods, he comes across a place where the honey buzzards once had nested. And Mike, we, we had honey buzzards in Scandinavia. Right. Do, do we think it's an accident that honey buzzards appear here, or might they have been in the UK anyway? I, I, you know, they, they definitely pass through Southeast England on their annual passage, but I wondered the same thing. And I thought, gosh, is there, and I, I didn't go back and reread that section earlier, but I thought the same thing. Why mention the honey buzzards here? Cause it just, but I, I, I couldn't, you know, I, it didn't come to me. This walk continues. And, and so, you know, he's kind of not deep into Jack's land yet, but you know, as he's approaching it here, it says, but it was ordinary country raised to the highest power. The mounting sun shone through a faint veil with never a hint of glare, giving the colors a freshness and an intensity Stephen had never seen equal. The green world and the gentle, pure blue sky might just have been created. And as the day warmed, a hundred scents drifted through the air. You know, we're remembering back to the, you know, the role of scent and emotion in, in this canon. Yeah, yeah. And then Stephen has this fascinating thoughts. He says to himself, returning thanks at any length is virtually impossible, he reflected, sitting on a stile and watching two hairs at play, sitting up and fibbing at one another, then leaping and running and leaping again. How few manage even five phrases with any effect? That is five phrases of giving thanks. And how intolerable are most dedications to even the best? Perhaps the endless repetition of flat formal praise. And so, Stephen, you know, sitting here really thinking about how do we give thanks and, and you know, how kind of just not up to snuff some of our thanksgiving is and and he's thinking about this Gloria, uh, you know, as kind of that. It's still running through his head. O'Brien says, maybe it's an attempt at overcoming this, an attempt at expressing gratitude by another means. I shall put this thought to Jack, he said, and and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, wow, you know, this is pretty deep stuff, and and so nature, faith, and then. I have to talk to Jack about this. So boy, yeah, here's the third leg of his stool for Stephen. You know, this is this is so good. And then, you know, Ian, I've got to call on you a Latin because Stephen <laughs> starts to sing and I will butcher this terribly. So. 
He's singing. This is this is my schoolboy British version of Latin. Quoniam tu solus sanctus, tu solus dominus, tu solus altissimus, which to the rest of us, Mike, means what? Well, and this is, boy, it, it really took me back because to the rest of us from my short time with a collar on, <laughs> this is, you know, you know it, it, at least in my tradition, for you alone are holy, you alone are the Lord, you alone are the highest. And it's, it's, it's part of this Gloria here. It's, um, you know, for anyone out there listening who has kind of a liturgical background, Catholic or Anglican or Lutheran, or as we used to say, sometimes whiskey Whiskeypalian, uh, so many others, you might recognize this or you, you might not have recognized it in Latin. It's just an amazing time uh, and an amazing reminder, you know, caught up in the glory of creation. How do we give thanks for it? As we say, especially hard for him now. And it kind of resonates to me in this, you know, where we've been doing this thing for almost a year and a half of pandemic, but taking that time to appreciate, to give thanks and that momentary wonder, especially, you know, kind of in the tough times, in the busyness of our lives, whether we're in a pandemic or not. Ah, great point. It's a really, really great point. And it's great that this description of what is otherwise Stevens wander through the woods to go see his friend Jack takes takes all of the reader's so deep into those thoughts. I think it's a sign of such great writing. And Mike, he's not done. He's not done. Stephen's still singing this Gloria to himself, and we encounter more of nature and more species and more allusions and aphorisms as well. He goes on singing until he hears a cuckoo call out on his left. And this cuckoo is replied out from his right. And this cuckoo, I think the sound cuckoo the call of cuckoo is connected to the word cuckold and this just collapses Stephen's little bubble of happiness at that moment o'brien says Stephen's happiness sank at once and he walked on with his head bowed and he walks onto jack's land which was poor spewy ground with the vile lead mines and their ancient heaps of spoil among them and with, with a hark back all the way to the beginning of desolation island and jack's first first miserable attempts at half-hearted agriculture we get jack's plants which are dwarfish much gnawed by rabbits hares deer and a large variety of caterpillars but even so the dawn is still breaking by now the day had woken up entirely to ordinary life the silence had long since gone and even if no cuckoo had called cuckold there would still have been nothing left of that feeling of imminent miracle and now it was no more than an exceptionally pleasant summery day in spring. Huh. So hope for an imminent miracle and then back to the commonplace. Right, right. But boy, I, I'll tell you, if you're going to fall, you know, falling from an imminent miracle to a, an exceptionally pleasant summery day in spring, not a bad job for Stephen's emotional backstop here. I'd, I'd love yeah. to be able to have that ability. It seems like when I fall, I fall a little deeper and harder than that. So well done, Stephen. So Stephen approaches the house from the rear, the small place that Jack had bought when he was poor and that he's added onto in pieces, you know, as, as prize money came in. Um, it, it's called an inharmonious jumble. But this jumble, these pieces st stitched together, Steve is looking at, and he says it does have these glorious stables. You know, it's built with one end for his fancy hunters and, and the other end for his fancy racehorses. It's got this clock tower in the midst of it. Uh, but 
unfortunately, because of Jack's turn of, of financial situation, you know, all the fancy hunters and the racehorses have been sold off and they're missing from their loose boxes. And, and O'Brien uses this term several times in this chapter. A loose box is, is just a horse stall. And it's a stall built such that a horse can be turned loose in. It doesn't have to be tied up, hence loose ah, box. So, okay. Yeah, usually kind of a larger thing, you know, with doors and a you know, place they can jump out of. Yeah. Well, Stephen's kind of surprised, though, because here's his fancy stable. And he knew you know, that, that these other things are going to be missing because they've all been sold off. But there's no horses at all. There's no cart. Uh, Sophie's gig is missing and there's complete silence from the house. And we remember this once before when Jack's walking up to the house, but this time there's no kids marching. There's no sound, no mother-in-law. And as Stephen looks up at the house, all the doors and the windows are open and partially dismantled. And, and he smells this really heavy smell of turpentine. And Stephen's thinking, oh my gosh, you know, Sometimes people use that as a disinfectant, like like after a cholera breakout. And and Stephen immediately goes to God between us and evil here. Yeah. Wow. So it's funny that we had a similar episode of this a few books ago when Jack was coming home and it was quiet and it was quiet and it was quiet and he wasn't sure what was going on. And he heard the sound of his kids shouting and chanting and marching in the yard. This time, Stephen's approaching. It's quiet and it's quiet and it's quiet. And this time he hears sailors shouting and chanting on the cricket field because there's a cricket match underway. Now, we've had this cricket set piece thing before out in the Far East. And O'Brien, at first, I think we get the idea that O'Brien is still avowedly a cricket fan because he spares a little bit of his poetical description for the beautiful bucolic sights and sounds of cricket. He talks about that particularly English sound of a bat striking a ball, and he hears more of the cries from the players and Stephen passes quickly through what Jack called the Rose Garden. And then Stephen thinks to himself, that's a lucus a non lucendo, which means a, a grove that does not shine, which I think is a Latinist way of saying this is kind of an oxymoron, the thing that is not a thing. So he's saying the Rose Garden doesn't really have any roses. So a little, right. a little, a little classically turned Patrick O'Brien joke for us there. So Stephen goes past this roseless rose garden and sees the cricket game taking place on a broad meadow. And again, this beautiful description, a formal dance, white shirts on the green. And he gets closer to see who's doing the dancing. And he recognizes one of the teams consists of his old shipmates, Place and Bondon and Captain Babington. And Babington's teammates are not lesbians this time, are crew members from his ship Tartarus, an 18-gun sloop. And we get this nice little description of how the two teams are shaping up to each other. Babington, it says, is bowling to his old shipmates as though he meant to carry their legs away as well as their stumps. And Babington's got reason to be proud of his cricketing chops, as we're going to hear in a second. Joe Place is stonewalling. He stops every straight ball, leaves all the rest. He hopes that he's in there for the whole day. Bonden, who flashes his bat around a bit, hit almost everything with equal fury. And uh, <laughs> And actually, we get, I think, what even baseball fans can recognize an easy fly ball coming right. here. Um, Bondon takes a swing at the next delivery. It goes right up in the air. It says, like a mortar shell towards Stephen. Three fieldsmen run towards Stephen, hollering, stand from under. And Stephen remembers this. Usually comes right before either a hot pitch or a heavy block or a sharp marlin spike fall on you at sea. So he hurries away, crouching, his hands over his head. He runs into a fielder and then into another, waiting to catch the ball. 
And it looks like they've completely fumbled the catch and we get all the welcoming and kind of uh, chastening cries. It's the doctor. And why can't you look where you are coming to, you clumsy ox? But we do turn out <laughs> the fielder that was going for the catch did actually hang on to the catch. And the ball is held aloft like the golden snitch in the game of Quidditch. <laughs> Yes, that's right. You know, he didn't he didn't cough it up out of his mouth, but he does hold it aloft. <laughs> so Stephen has managed to wander onto the field of play and, and narrowly avoid inflicting wretched disaster on his shipmates. So Jack, of course, sees Stephen there out in the outfield and, and he's so happy to see him. He offers him a beer, which they have there on the field side. And Stephen asks for coffee saying, you know, he's missed his breakfast. And Jack, God love him, walks him up to the house to brew a pot. Um, and Jack says Sophie didn't realize that Jack was going to be home now. And she's off in Ireland with the kids and her mother because Francis is having a baby. So she's on her way back. She should arrive Tuesday, maybe even as early as Monday. So yeah, Jack explains that, you know, Babington and the Tartarus are in their docked and they're close by. And Jack was able to find enough surprises about that they've arranged this cricket game here. Unfortunately, Mowat and Pullings have just left to go into town to see the publisher. Jack, sorry that uh, Stephen didn't get a chance to see them. But he says, you know, not to worry. Dinner will be soon catered by the goat and compasses. And I thought the goat and compasses, this is, you know, kind of a local pub or something, you know, interesting name. And, you know, we always see O'Brien drop these things in. And I think, well, I wonder here. And sure enough, there's at least one, I believe, still in the UK. I found two in the US, oh, wow. amazingly <laughs> enough. And, and maybe we can pop out on social media. There's some great uh, write-ups, one in particular, about where this name may have come from, if they existed in history, a number of theories, a number of speculations. But if I was thinking about Patrick O'Brien, who's just written this wonderful stuff about the Gloria and everything, kind of winking at us in, in a subsequent <laughs> couple of paragraphs, uh, one of them links this name, goat and compasses, to a corruption of the Puritan phrase, God encompasses us. <laughs> ah. <laughs> and so, wow, a lot of other people dispute that, you know, who would, who would have a pub sign that originally said God encompasses us, particularly a Puritan? But it sure sounds like great fun <laughs> and is the way many pub names come about. You know, there was one phrase that got turned into another. But we know that dinner is going to be coming later. Stephen eats a couple of small, thin uh, biscuits while he's uh, you know, talking here with Jack. And Jack is going on and on showing Stephen how he intends to build a new wing to his house. You know, he really needs it to, to, you know, kind of manage his growing family. And as they're talking, uh, one of Jack's seamen, Dre, who I don't believe we've met before, comes back in Sophie's gig with the newspaper that Jack had sent him into Portsmouth to pick up. Um, I, I love this, this quick aside here. O'Brien tells us that the gig is pulled by a horse named Moses, who is Sophie's horse. O'Brien writes, a very short-legged, short-sighted, deaf, meek animal of uncertain age, carefully chosen for Sophie, who feared and disliked horses. And, and we learned that she had real good reason that when she was young, she was you know, forced to ride uh, what O'Brien called an iron-mouthed biter. Ouch. And that she'd also seen Jack with all these broken ribs and collarbones from his fox hunting and, and uh, hunting and jumping there. And the fact that, you know, Jack's racehorses had almost kind of run off with her daughter's dowries at one point, <laughs> all this spending on horses. So for lots of reason, Sophie wants a very meek and mild 
horse here, which yeah. she had. <laughs> so th- there's going to be a little moment here of people seeking and offering and talking about advice. And maybe this is to put a little bit of a wrapper around this big giving and receiving advice that we've already had about stock tips. Right. So reading the financial page, we see that Jack's face looks 10 years younger. And he says that his things are going better than he thought. He hopes, he says, that Stephen has profited. And Stephen replies, sure, I took notice of your advice in a way that suggests to Jack that no more is going to be said. And by the way, we know from the beginning of this chapter that Stephen is against the idea that this this advice, this rumor is worth a buying decision. And Jack goes on talking about improvements to the house, to the terrace, to the fountainage, to the billiard room, and the paint. And he apologizes for the smell of the paint. We're going to get quite a lot of the environmental consequences of hasty and overzealous decoration in a minute here. They, they walk and they drink their coffee. And Jack tells Stephen that he's going to buy the surprise. And Stephen's a bit shocked at this. He recalls that um, when the Chesapeake was taken, the government gave £20,000 for it, which is a stupendous amount of money. And Jack says, well, that was maybe more in the kind of encouraging line. And perhaps uh, a frigate, an older frigate like Surprise, being sold out of the service will go for less. Stephen asks Jack how one buys a ship like that. And by the way, as readers, we might think it's an odd kind of question to ask how. Stephen doesn't normally pay that much attention to questions of how in matters of the sea. And let's take a pin in this because it might turn out that it's important that Stephen learns a little bit about how. Jack says you have to have cash in hand when it's sold. And he's about to go on and give uh, Stephen some more of the scoop here. And he's distracted by the arrival of dinner, by the arrival of this wagon coming from the goat encompasses. And while Stephen's catching up with Padine, we get this very nice turn, I think, in the description of Stephen and therefore Patrick O'Brien's perspective on cricket. Stephen asks Padine, did you score a run? And Padine, presumably in Irish, says, I believe I did, sir, dear, but then I ran back, and will it be ever counted to me? Who can tell? And Padine asks Stephen to explain what he calls this Saxon game to him. And Stephen, having played only once and says uh, he's not quite sure of the finer points nor even of the coarser ones he says i'll ask the little captain to explain it after they finish their venison pasty so mike who's who's the little captain surely that's not jack well no no the little captain is babington <laughs> and, and stephen you know stephen's telling padine that that babington had played for the gentleman of hampshire uh and by way of explanation he says that hampshire is to cricket what Thoman is to hurling. Babington tries to explain the game, but everyone around him keeps interrupting him because everybody has their own opinions. And, and you would think they've had this large meal, they've had all this beer, uh, you know, that everybody would be kind of, you know, they've been playing cricket all day here, that everybody would be a little bit uh, drowsy. But no, 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 everyone young and old, O'Brien writes, had particular views on the origins of cricket, on what constituted fair bowling, on the number of stumps in their grandfather's time, and the best way of using a bat. And one of Babington's own midshipmen quarreled with Babington's definition of a wide. But nobody contradicted Captain Aubrey, who in any case had gone to sleep leaning against the wheel of the cart with his hat over his face, but they wrangled so perniciously among themselves that Babington invited Stephen to walk round the field to be shown the positions of square leg, long stop, and mid-on. He tells Stephen that, you know, they'll talk more about it the next day. 
And Stephen, I think Stephen has absolutely had it, as you said. You will never play all this afternoon and all tomorrow, too, for God's love. And uh, he, he says, Brian says, Stephen has been shocked out of civility by the thought of such insufferable tedium drawn out to such unconscionable length. Ah, oh, poor old Stephen, perhaps falling out of love with cricket. And perhaps we're getting a sign that despite all the bucolic poetry, Patrick O'Brien's a bit out of love with cricket as well. I'm not sure. Anyhow, meanwhile, Babington says it, it would have been a three days match. <laughs> Stephen's rolling his eyes at this point. But Mrs. Aubrey is due home and they need to have the house painted, swabbed and dried before she arrives. And now we get one of these rounds of advice asked and offered. Babington comes up quietly to tell Stephen that he wants to ask for advice. And Stephen's pretty sure as this preamble comes in that it's not going to be a request for a loan, which was how Babington might have come about it when he was younger. Babington now has a considerable estate and a rotten parliamentary borough. Babington reminds Stephen how upset Admiral Hart had been, Admiral Hart who blew up um, aboard the three-decker at the end of Treason's Harbour, how upset Admiral Hart had been when he learned that Babington was <clears throat> kissing Hart's daughter. And he tells Stephen that Hart had shut her up, shut Fanny up. He'd beaten her when they wrote letters, and he'd married her off to our good friend and enemy, Andrew Ray, saying that he would never let her out in society unless he consented. Now, when Babington had returned in the Dryad, he had seen Fanny at a ball and they fell all the way back in love again. He says that they were just as fond of each other as they had been before. And Stephen interrupts. He says, listen, listen, William, my dear, if you wish me to advise you to commit adultery. No, no, sir, cried Babington, smiling. I don't need any advice about adultery. <laughs> and we believe that to be absolutely true, right? We we do. It's what we call a single entendre, I think. <laughs> right. <laughs> so we get to talking more deeply about the situation with Fanny and with her husband, Ray. Everyone believed that Ray was inheriting a great fortune from Hart, from his father-in-law. But what they didn't know is that Ray can't get at any of the money without Fanny's own consent. And Mike, this is a very, very feminist, very non-18th century way of setting about it. So... Right. Yeah, good on Admiral Hart, I guess. Um, it turns out that Ray and Fanny don't agree on anything. Ray drinks too much. He beats Fanny. He told her that he only married her for her money. He's in debt. And the bailiffs are often calling around the house. And Stephen realizes that this visit that Stephen had made to Ray's place must have come across as pretty importunate. Babington then wants Stephen's thoughts on his two options. One option is to give Ray some of Fanny's fortune as kind of hush money if he agrees to pretend to be married to her but set them free to go their own way and there's no kind of contract that could be written that would cover that ray would need to be trusted for that to work the other option they're considering is basically to bolt for babington and fanny to head off on a moonlit night in a post chaise and just start a new life somewhere else now, Ray could then sue Babington for the offence of criminal conversation, which is essentially the, a, a criminal code against adultery, depriving the husband of his sexual rights over his wife. In, in England, at this point, it was probably heard by ecclesiastical rather than secular courts, but there would be a route for Ray to take court action against Babington on that basis. And while they're mulling this over, a youngster runs up. The cricket match is back on. Jack is awake and wonders if they shouldn't start the innings since there's so much work to be done before Sophie gets home. 
So they step back into the world of cricket and Babington asks Stephen to think about it. Yeah, it's kind of fascinating from what we know about Stephen, about Ray's debt to Stephen. All this is kind of really blending in. And we've got Stephen, who is a pretty sharp mind here. And Stephen O'Brien writes, although he knew that in cases of this kind, any advice that did not exactly agree with the wishes of those concerned was always useless and often offensive. But just the same, although he knew all that, Stephen did turn it over in his mind all through that interminable afternoon while the Tartars has built up their score, mostly in singles and buys. And, uh, you know, Brian tells us that a couple of these Tartars batters kind of hung on all afternoon, kept going and going and going, until finally the sun had dropped low enough that it kind of blinded one of them, and and he pops out here. Uh, so uh, I don't know. And here we here we go. We're sort of end of day one with cricket. We've got this dilemma of Babington's. We've got Stephen thinking over not only the dilemma but the idea of giving advice to a dear friend in a situation like this. Wow, yeah. it's a lot to consider. And meanwhile, there's venison pasty. Uh, and as I look here, India are 116 for two in their second inning. So some of us might need to just step outside and check the cricket <laughs> score. Oh, I love it. <laughs> Brilliant. So, so we'll, be, we'll be right back in an over or two. All right. If you're enjoying the podcast, please come and join our supporters on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash lovers hole. So uh, we should just take a moment here to mention to you that, as, as you've heard us mention already, we've been collaborating with our new friends, Steve and John, Steve Morris and John Roker, over at the Cinephiles podcast, because right now they are reviewing Master and Commander Far Side of the World, and we're going to get to share that with you guys. Mike, won't that be great? I had such a great time recording that with him. I'm loving that we're going to be able to share it with our listeners as well. So for the next couple of episodes, you're going to hear us going through the twists and the turns and the glory and the tragedy that is Master and Commander Far Side of the World on the Cinephiles podcast. The crew have refreshed themselves. We hope that you have refreshed yourselves on venison pasty as well. And we learn that the next day's play in this cricket match was somewhat less rigid with the Tartarus as leaving Jack's team 255 to get before Owlhoot and the surprises beating the ball about the field in a brisk, seaman-like fashion. But by now, it was too late. And we're not talking about too late for a result, too, uh, too late to avoid the draw, too late for Stephen. As far as Stephen was concerned, cricket was marked down forever as an intolerably insipid pastime, decorative enough for half an hour, perhaps, but not to be compared with hurling, for speed, skill, grace of movement, and dramatic fire. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. <laughs> fair enough. Point well made. <laughs> and we, we talked a few episodes ago, in fact, many episodes ago, about the connection between hurling and cricket. And I think it's in, cricketers who are trying to play forms of the game that are all more about speed and dramatic fire. Um, cricketers that are trying to play the short form of the game have taken to going and practicing with hurling teams. So I think Stephen's not a million miles off in his assessment, but I've got to say, I'm still... Still a fan of the long form of the game of cricket. Nice. We get our second little bit of advice and commentary asked for and offered. 
Parson Martin shows up. Our old friend Nathaniel Martin shows up. And this is great news for Stephen Maturin, a very congenial companion, hopefully somebody who can offer him some non-sports-related company. Martin needs his certificate of good conduct and moral behavior from Jack before he can draw pay as a parson. He needs the pay for his upcoming wedding. And Martin, who's been a bachelor so far and lived in lodgings, cannot believe the cost of setting up a house. It's weighing on him. He and his bride-to-be are going to be living in a small cottage near her father's rectory so that his wife won't be lonely when Martin's at sea. Stephen has heard enough about the costs of each needed object and suggests that they take a break by going to see a bird nesting nearby. To tell you the truth, Maturin, this is Parson Martin speaking, on a perfectly vernal day like this, I find nothing so pleasant as sitting on a comfortable chair in the sun with green, green grass stretching away, the sound of bat and ball and the sight of cricketers, particularly cricketers such as these. Do not you find watching good cricket restful, absorbing, a balm to the anxious, harassed mind? I can I can almost hear Stephen's eyes rolling at this point. <laughs> Stephen says that saving Martin's presence, he finds it all unspeakably tedious. And Martin suggests that some of the finer shades of the game might escape, Stephen, saying it's been years since he, Martin, has seen such a serious game of cricket. And Stephen comes back saying, well, this one is serious enough for all love, nay, funereal. And Martin, I think, is is resisting this line of banter from Stephen for a bit longer. He says, Joseph Banks, president of the Royal Society, Stephen, the great calm of botany, how he calls him, told him that cricket was played regularly in heaven. And that from a man with his attainments, meaning Sir Joseph Banks, that is surely a recommendation. And Stephen says, sure, I must draw what comfort I can from the doctrine of limbo. (laughs) (laughs) So tell us about the doctrine of limbo, Mike. How is it being helpful to Stephen here? Oh, it's too funny. I mean, I mean, this is a doctrine that has evolved over time. Uh, in the Catholic Church and differences in East and West. But essentially, it, it's a place where people, limbo is kind of on the edge, meaning on the edge of hell. So it's outside hell. It's where you wait to get into heaven. Stephen's essentially saying, you know, he hopes he'll get to spend as much time as possible somewhere where they're not playing cricket before he has to enter heaven. <laughs> or, or maybe, I don't know, you know, maybe those of us who are not theologically minded will read this as he wants to spend as much time dancing under a stick that he's not supposed to knock down. Maybe it's that limbo. Perhaps <laughs> not. Well, purgatory narrowly avoided that. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Now, Martin, I think he's not going to be knocked off his his cricket fandom here. He's still closely watching the match. He's cheering it on. He says he's sorry to have missed Moat. He's heard about this story of Moat's publisher bringing out his book by subscription. And Martin, who has some experience as a published author, had wanted to warn Moat about the disadvantages. He says he's especially keen that Moat should avoid having to go out to all his friends and relatives to have them sign up and make regular contributions. So he had also wanted to warn Moat that this particular publisher as an individual was tolerably notorious in Grub Street. And Martin is afraid that sailors ashore are not as cautious as they should be considering the rapacious duplicity of certain landsmen. And Mike, this sounds like a little warning just a day or two too late for Jack Aubrey. 
Yeah, yeah. It would no doubt in my mind here that, yes, you know, we're worried about Mowat, but I think this is O'Brien kind of layering on, you know, be afraid, be very afraid. We've we've gotten, you know, again and again and again, these echoes about what Jack's involved in here. I, I think we're getting warning after warning here of, you know, Jack ashore here. Ah. Well, Martin you know, God bless him, still tries to get Stephen to love cricket, as as you, my dear friend, have, have always done for me as, <laughs> as we've sat in airports around the world. <laughs> you know, and he, like you, is, you know, is pointing out the finer sides. But after 10 more overs with five men still to go on, Stephen, you know, kind of pulls out all the stops and says, you know, why, why don't we go see this Rhineck that's close by? I, I had seen him earlier. And, and this Rhineck, a bit of a rare bird, fascinating bird. We'll come back to that in a minute. But Martin is unmoved and he sticks with his cricket. But he does say, oh, a Rhineck. Yes, they call him the cuckoo's mate in these parts. And the cuckoo is here. Dear me, yes, hear them. Three at least. So Martin is like still watching the cricket game. But he says, yeah, you know, I can hear three cuckoos. Cuckoo, cuckoo, he says, Oh, word of fear, unpleasing to a married ear. Dear Lord, to think I shall be a husband in a fortnight's time. So, oh my gosh, he's just, you know, kind of now ripped the wound open for Stephen, poured the salt in it again, this thing that brought Stephen down earlier with this cuckoo cuckold thing. But uh, nevertheless, here's Martin turning immediately to pitch it up, man, pitch it up or you're never getting him out. Long hops are no good to man or beast. So, you know, we're right back into the cricket game here while Stephen kind of uh, misses the bird watching and and sits there in his sorrow over Diana. Long hops, absolutely no good to man or beast. But tell tell us about this Rhineck. What's a Rhineck? Well, fascinating little thing. And and definitely, I hope we'll, we'll pop some social media up on this. This is an old world bird. A, a small brown woodpecker that doesn't actually peck any wood. And it says that the English, you know, the English name for this comes from their ability to turn their heads almost 180 degrees when they're mm. disturbed, you know, at the nest. They use this snake-like head twisting and hissing as a display threat. It's been occasionally called a snake bird for that reason. It's also, by the way, used to be called a jinx. And when we say about jinxing somebody, that name comes from this bird. Now, it is today very rare in the UK. And, and I suspect was if, if it wasn't quite as rare back then, was also a pretty fascinating thing to see. I, I've never seen a bird doing anything like it. So oh. hopefully we'll, we'll put a clip up there so you can kind of see this thing in action and learn some of these interesting facts about it. Oh, great. And this feeling of the natural world being a haven for Stephen to withdraw into that we had at the beginning of the chapter, it's still with us. Stephen goes back into the woods and meadows and he finds that they were even more perfect now than they had been in the morning. We get more species called out. We get a petty chaps. We get a hen pheasant. We get a goshawk with a silver bell on its leg. And he's thinking about Babington's situation with Fanny and with, uh, with Andrew Ray. In the evening, when the match ends in a draw, as three-day cricket matches so often do, just as Martin had predicted. Uh, by, by the way, that just simply means that they didn't have enough time to play enough innings to get what's called an innings defeat, where one team is a whole inning score ahead of the other. And it's surprisingly common in cricket. You can play for three days. You can play for five days and go, huh, okay, it's a draw. And the draw is still an interesting and, in sporting terms, a worthwhile and interesting result. 
But for the crowd, it's perhaps not the adrenaline rush that Stephen might <laughs> to, be hoping for. To say the least. <laughs> yeah, I, I have to admit that I, it's, that's the part that overall that I still don't get. Wait, we're five days and it's a draw? <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Anyhow. Stephen tells Babington that he has nothing positive or even moderately intelligent to offer by way of advice about the Fanny Hart situation. He confirms what Babington knows. He says an injured husband in the Admiralty itself is capable of hurting a sea officer's career. And Babington says, well, yes, you're right. I've thought about it. But on the other hand, Babington with his cousins have between five and seven votes in the Commons, which is the place most important for ministry support, and thinks that, well, you know, my family, we have the connections to even up any malign interest placed on us by uh, Andrew Ray. Stephen then observes that in general, not talking about Ray in particular, it is unwise to trust anyone you don't know well, especially if they dislike you. And he describes it as a generality worthy of La Palice. And Mike, I don't think we've got any idea precisely what that allusion meant. La Palice is the harbour in the town of Brest in northwestern France, which, by the way, is where Babington is off to blockade quite shortly. But we don't know. Anyhow, he's made this generality about not trusting people that you don't know well. And Babington says, "Ah, oh, thank you, Doctor. I knew you were in favour of us bolting. And Stephen's been very careful to say nothing of the kind. Right. Babington's, Babington's not having any of this. He's, he's, he thinks that a nod is as good as a wink to a blind man. He says, oh, I always knew you had the best headpiece in the service. And I'm going to tell Fanny they'll be heading for the breast blockade on Monday. Babington is sorry that he'll miss Sophie, but he's glad to be helping to get the house ready for her. Uh, this this getting the house ready apparently is quite the production. So O'Brien tells us that Stephen had seen Captain Aubrey, his officers and men, getting their ship ready for an admiral's inspection, but he had not seen Jack preparing the house for the return of a dearly loved, long-absent wife. It was an impressive sight, and all the more so because Jack was increasingly aware that Sophie might be very bitterly offended against him. He was nervous apprehensive and deprecating. And so on on Wednesday, Jack and his expert crew from the surprise, from the Tartarus, all these guys that, you know, the carpenter and the carpenter's mates and everybody else who are used to kind of essentially taking the ship completely apart and putting it back together again, at least parts of it every day for gunnery practice. And also some expert joiners that Jack has brought in from Portsmouth. They're all together there. They started removing, scraping, and rubbing every painted window and door in the house. And, you know, O'Brien describes how they're all taken off the house. They're all hung all around in the yard. And they hoped to have them all kind of back up, uh, you know, everything massively cleaned and all the principal rooms restored to use by Sunday. So they're starting on Wednesday hope to get it done by Sunday, and then Monday morning kind of finish everything else up so that by the time Sophie gets back, they'll be good. And in the meantime, they can't really use the house, so everybody's got hammocks slung in the loose boxes and the coach house. And the coach house itself, part of this great big stables, glorious stables that Jack has, is completely stuffed with the furniture from the house. So (laughs) quite an undertaking here. Yeah. Now, this cleaning and kind of turning out of the house, we're not done with it yet. Jack asks Stephen if he minds waking early in the morning. And by the way, we know that for somebody like Jack, early doesn't mind um, 8.30 for a 9 a.m. cup of coffee. This means early, early with the larks. 
Babington has suggested that they can take up the house's flagstones, grind them and square them, and give them a true surface. Ooh. <sighs> but like I say, my, my wife would love this as a way of cleaning house. Fills me with the horrors. Stephen, it says, had grown used to extreme discomfort at sea or in any other place where the Navy carried its Hebraic notions of ritual cleanliness, but never had he experienced anything to touch the desolation of Ashgrove Cottage shortly after the various working parties had moved in at dawn. The place appeared to have been boarded and taken by storm. So Stephen was glad to take Martin and catch a coach home. Away from cricket once more, Martin and Stephen can return to being natural philosophers, and they talk about natural philosophy stuff. When they get to town, Martin turned back into the anxious, budget-constrained future husband. He's shopping to find the things that he needs for the new cottage. He's been given a list, and now that he knows he's going to get his pay, thanks to getting his, his good conduct from Jack, he decides to up his game to a copper gravy strainer and a brass Bottle Jack, he's really pushing the boat out. O'Brien is having fun with us. He's writing about the most mundane backstairs kind of kitchen appliances. He's not talking about services of plate or soup tureens or any of the nice kind of showy bits of domestic establishment. He's talking about the grimy bits of the nuts and bolts of running a kitchen. A gravy strainer isn't something that you're going to put on the sideboard and be pleased with. Getting a copper one, it's a way of showing that you're a bit fancy, but I don't think it convinces anybody. A bottle jack made me scratch my head for a minute. A bottle jack is part of a roasting apparatus. So a roasting jack is an apparatus that hangs a joint of meat up over a fire and finds some way of turning it like a spit so that it can roast on all sides. And a particular version of that is a bottle jack, which is a clockwork motor in a brass shell that happens to be shaped like a bottle. It was a late 18th century innovation and it replaced simpler ways of simply dangling the meat over the fire and letting it kind of turn in the breeze. So there you go. It's not a particularly glamorous thing. Getting a brass one, again, smacks of showing away a little bit. Nonetheless, Martin is very, very big on his kind of middle-class trumping of, of you know, all, all of his neighbor's bottle jacks. He says these are consequential purchases. He'd appreciate Stephen's advice. And the text says, Stephen's advice on bottle jacks was of no great value, but he gave it for rather more than half a wavering, undecided hour, he having a sincere regard for Martin. Yet, well-founded though it was, his affection would not run to discussing the merits of different kinds of copper-bottomed, tin-bodied well-kettles for an equal length of time. He left Martin with the ironmonger's kind and infinitely patient wife and stepped across the street to a silversmith's, where he bought a teapot, cream jug and sugar bowl as a wedding present. Now, this is the person to whom everybody's been turning for advice. Babington's been turning to Stephen for advice on marital affairs. Martin's been turning for Stephen for advice on bottle jacks. Jack has turned to Stephen for advice on plenty of occasions. Let's just remind ourselves of the imperfections of the advice giver here. What goes on with these purchases and the wrapping up? So this this is, like you say, the guy with the best head in the Navy, as, <laughs> as, uh, as Babington has said. And so Martin is just astonished by Stephen's gift. It's all, you know, incredibly well wrapped up. And he knows it's from the silversmith. And he it wants to look at it, but he's afraid, you know, he'll never get it packed back up the right way. And and the, you know, the ironmonger's wife says, Don't worry, if you unwrap it, I'll wrap it up and make it all nice for you. So he looks at it and then he's really blown away. He says it's extremely handsome. He takes it very kindly. 
Polly will be so delighted. Bless you, says Martin. And, and as they're looking at all this, the silversmith runs very agitatedly back into the shop. You know, so glad that somebody pointed out that Stephen had gone in there. And he gives Stephen, he counts out 17 pounds, four and three pence change that Stephen had left his shop before receiving. And, and you know, there's this big scene, you know, kind of the silver smith is looking at the ironmonger's wife. They're like shaking their heads. They can't believe this here. And, and by the time the ironmonger's wife has rewrapped Stephen's gift to Martin, you know, Stephen and Martin have to run down the street because the Salisbury coach has departed. They're hallowing and, you know, hollering, trying to get them to stop, which it finally does for Martin. And after it leaves, Stephen looks at the hand that he's waving goodbye with and realizes that he's still holding Martin's medium-sized jelly bag in this waving hand. So, Ian, you know, this this clearly is, is you know, a, a scene of some import, but you're going to have to do the money exchange for me here. What's what's this really saying? So from the change that's being counted out, it appears that um, Stephen paid for these three beautiful silver gifts, obviously quite considerable silver gifts. He paid for them with a £20 note. So, and he forgot the change. And a £20 note is worth hundreds, if not thousands, in, in money of today. So he paid for items costing £2.15 shillings and nine pence. And forgot his change. <laughs> Enough change to buy a house, basically. <laughs> there you go. Right, right. You know, people who were, you know, incredibly well off, you know, had huge estates, weren't getting, you know, a matter of hundreds of years. So for Stephen just to walk off on this, <laughs> not necessarily the guy you'd want to go to advice to, but, but amazingly enough, the guy that comes through with great stuff. <laughs> yeah, indeed. So heading back to Ashgrove Cottage, Stephen finds that this whole cleaning and wrecking out of the floor has proceeded ravaged and we learn eviscerated, right choice of word. The stone floors have been ripped out. There are planks all over the smelly earth. The grounds, the gardens are covered with these planks and with wet sailcloth. There's water running where they've sprayed the gritted stones. Jack is really delighted with this. He thinks this is getting properly into it. The stones are turning out beautifully clean and smooth. I think we get a little bit of an idea of the cost of this when O'Brien wrote in the text that you know two hundred years of patina was being washed away into the garden. Right? Oh my gosh! Jack is really, really pleased though. He looks beyond the paused, grinding men. They see a post chaise arriving, and Mike, this takes us all by surprise. Takes Jack even more so. He's looking straight into Sophie's face. Her expression, incredulous, appalled instantly changed to open delight. Jack grabs her, kisses her, and explains that everything will be put back right tomorrow. He asks about the children as she tells him about the crossing and the journey, their words bubbling over each other. And Sophie finally recovered her wits, and it says, diverting her eyes from the wreck of her house, she shook Babington's hand, embraced Stephen tenderly, greeted all the officers, young gentlemen and seamen she knew, and said she would not get in their way would go and sort her baggage and draw breath in one of the loose boxes. There was nothing she preferred to a really commodious loose box. Ah, oh, Sophie, she's a good wife. <laughs> what, what a gracious word. Yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, don't mind me. I'll just slip off to this old horse stall because, you know, <laughs> nothing I prefer more than an old horse stall. So my now, bit- for my wife, that would be absolutely true. But for most women, not. not so. <laughs> So, Mike, this is the moment where Jack and Sophie come eyeball to eyeball, and we finally get to find out where Sophie stands with respect to the Sam Panda irregularity. Yes. So, Sophie and Jack 
not only had she retired to the loose box to take care of herself, she ate supper with Jack there by candlelight in the loose box where had once stood Jezebel, Jack's racehorse for the Oaks. We might come back to Jezebel in a moment. Right. They got caught up on who had read which letters sent by which of them to whom at what point, catching up with news that they hadn't heard. Jack was telling her which letter he had received last when he realised that he was running fast, it says, into uncharted shoaling water. Oh yes, cried Sophie, the one that kind, attentive young man offered to carry. And so he found you then. I'm so glad, my dear. She looked at him, hesitated, and then, flushing a little, she went on, I thought him so particularly amiable, all one could wish in a young man, and very much hope he will give us a long visit as soon as ever his duties allow. I should very much like the children to know him. Wow. Double wow. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. You know, she's she's so kind about this that you almost wonder, did she miss it? But, you know, Brian's given us that little, no, flushing a little, she went on. Ah, oh, man. And should very much like the children to know him because he's their half-brother. Yes, yeah. exactly. I mean, boy, you talk about a woman just, you know, completely full of grace. This is This is amazing. And her final thought about Sam was actually the same as Jack's kind of ultimate thought jack's ultimate thought was i I wish george could grow up to be a man like sam yeah sophie is saying more or less the same thing this is a really great moment of the two of them together what a payoff (laughs) what a payoff absolutely and and, you know and and i just love o'brien you know he could have done this whole scene in the loose box it would have been wonderful it's funny because it's in the loose box with the candlelight dinner but no the old racehorse was jezebel and of course jezebel kind of code for centuries being the wicked woman. And and now, so the racehorse Jezebel is gone. You know, you might say that that wicked woman, the the Jezebel in Jack's past that you know we were afraid Sophie was reacting to is is gone. Uh, but uh, probably the the husband who could have been condemned as wicked uh, because he'd slept with another woman and and conceived a son out of wedlock. Clearly, they're all gone from this loose box, and, and it appears that all we have left are these two people in a love, gracious and forgiving of one another, which is a wonderful place to be. Oh. So things are being put back together, at least for now. Jack and Sophie together, absolutely on the same page. Really great for us as readers, really great for us as what you might call Team Jack and Team Sophie. Yeah. The house is getting put back together. The text says, by 11 on Monday morning, the last pieces of the disrupted pattern fell into place. And Ashgrove Cottage, newly painted, newly floored, its glass pump handles and all the metalwork gleaming with a somewhat aggressive naval cleanliness, looked very much as Jack had wished Sophie to see it when she arrived. And at noon, after they've had their roast beef and plum duff, they say goodbye to Babington's men. It says, reasonably sober, who were sent off to take to the sea on the evening tide. Jack led Sophie around the property to show her the improvements that he planned to make, and he talked about those already with Stephen. He tells her that Stephen calls this little path the Boreen. Boreen is an Irish term for a narrow country road, and he points out that he hopes Stephen's not been too offended by Jack commenting on how he says things, and he's aware, Jack is, of his ability to, to stamp a little bit on Stephen's feelings about a number of different things. Stephen, we hear, had gone off to Portsmouth to attend Mass, And clearly, he's been thinking a lot about his faith since he's been singing the Gloria to himself in the morning. 
and he'd sent Padine back to say that he, Stephen, had been called to London and begged to be excused. Sophie assures Jack that Stephen was not offended by his comment. However, Sophie is morally certain, says O'Brien, that Stephen found her deeply affectionate sympathy more painful than any other. And she was wondering how this could be phrased or indeed whether it could be said at all when they saw Killick hurrying towards them from the house. So we were about to get into the brother-sister relationship, the beautiful, tender brother-sister relationship between Sophie and Stephen. And here comes Killick. Has he got toasted cheese or something else? Yeah. Stepping back for just a second to this brother-sister relationship. I'm remembering all the times that Jack didn't want to be around the people who were going to tell him about losing the surprise. Yeah. And now here we have Stephen, you know, oh, I've got to get into London, who perhaps doesn't want to be about Sophie. He's going to remind him so much about losing Diana. But as you point out, Killick is hurrying up here. And Jack sees this look on Killick's face. You know, he's seen this before. And Jack says, you know, is it the bailiffs? In the past, Killick sort of watched out for these people coming to arrest Jack on debt. And Killick says, no, it's a rum cully, sir, more like a gent. And, sir, he said in a low, anxious voice behind his head, it's no good tipping them the go-by. There's a party of heavyweight coves each end of the lane and behind, and they look precious like Bow Street runners. So here we have this, you know, this is not, you know, just some bailiff with his stick out to get Jack. It's in Rum Cully, hard to track down, apparently part of sort of the criminal slang of the time. Rum Cully called sometimes a rich coxcomb. Hmm. A, a coxcomb sort of being, you know, one of those, a dandy yeah. man, you know, kind of coming from the coxcomb flowers that are so good. So this guy, you know, like Kelly says, more like a gent here. So he's not one of these lower class bailiffs. And yeah. Jack heads up to the house and there is, you know, this man standing there with a folded paper waiting for him. Jack introduces himself and the man asks if they can speak privately. So this is, you know, it's kind of nice. It's clearly not what Jack has run into before, you know, jumping out of windows to get away from bailiffs here. The man tells him he's concerned to say that he has a warrant for Jack's arrest. Jack says, the devil it is at whose suit? And the man explains that it's, it's not an arrest for debt, but an arrest by warrant for conspiracy to defraud the stock exchange. And Jack takes it pretty well. He says, oh, oh, is that all? Says Jack with great relief. Good Lord, I can easily explain my dealings with them. Uh, The man steps back a little bit. He says, well, I'm I'm sure you can, but I I really need you to come with me. And he says, you know, he kind of hopes that he doesn't, that Jack doesn't make him place a gentleman of your quality under restraint goes on, if you'll give me your word not to an attempt at escape, I will delay the execution of this warrant for half an hour so you may make your arrangements, but then we must set off for London. I have a carriage waiting at the door. Wow. So, having successfully swerved around one bit of Cochrane adventure a couple of chapters ago, those of us who follow the Cochrane story know that Jack has piled headlong into the greatest of all the misadventures of Thomas Cochrane. Right. Ah. So, Mike, what a, 
what a killer. We had this beautiful, bucolic, poetic setup. We had all this companionship, all this friendship, all this cricket, all this food and drink. We had Jack and Sophie together. We had Hearts Balm for Stephen from nature and from his faith. And here we go. Jack's arrested for fraud. Huh. All this advice, all this advice given backwards and forth, and it turns out the one person who is least successful in following advice is the one person who's succumbed to the bad advice of another. Right, right, Jack Ashore, and you know, and Jack sounds so confident that this is going to be okay. But we remember just a chapter ago in Stephen's chapter, yeah. you know, him meeting that older member of the club who's going to see those folks from the stock exchange being hanged. And, you know, we had that line about, you know, the stock exchange spares neither, you know, husband nor wife nor children, you know, all of that. So very, very concerning. And, you know, Stephen perhaps gone back to London, you know, to not be around Sophie. But we remember that there was all this stuff going on at the Admiralty, the secret war inside naval intelligence, Stephen being invited to go on a mission to France. You know, I really wonder, where's where's O'Brien taking us next? Oh, man. And what's it going to mean for Jack? Is he going to get to hang on to this beautiful, gracious moment in his relationship with Sophie? What's going to happen with the surprise as she gets sold out of service? Mike, we've got a lot further to go in this book. What do you say perhaps next time, then, to just a little bit more Patrick O'Brien? I would like that of all things. That's the part that overall that I still don't get. Wait, we're five days and it's a draw? I love it.